Assalamu alaikum friends and welcome to a Muslim Mum podcast. I'm your host Farhat Amin and today's episode will be exploring the idea of justice versus equality. Now, this is the last episode in the season that I've been exploring feminism and one of the main ideas of feminism as you know is that equality is a important principle that we should strive for. It's an aim, a goal that you know men and women should be working towards putting their energy into you know, going to marches, you know, calling for equality has become so important nowadays. And it seemed that once, only once we achieve equality between men and women, will there then be, that's how you achieve justice. That that's, that's the thinking. So what I want to look at is as Muslims, have we just embraced that idea without, you know, critiquing it? Or And also, is that something, you know, does our Islamic text allow us to even jump onto this bandwagon? Now, as Muslims, we all know that the core of our belief is submission to the will of Allah. That's what it means to be a Muslim. We don't submit to our own whims and desires. We tailor our desires and our wants to what our creator wants. Now, if we look at the core aim of feminism, it's to gain equal rights with men, whether that be social, political or economic. Now, equality is therefore not the starting point for a Muslim. Rather, the starting point is Allah's justice, which creates balance in society. This does not mean that Islam aims for inequality. Rather, it doesn't take equality into consideration when the laws and the rules are um, created for, for us to follow. So what do I mean by that? We're accused of, if we don't call for equality, then therefore that means you must want inequality. So you want some kind of privilege for either men or for women. And we could even say, could it that even apply to a particular race? or a particular class. Now, if we look at the Islamic laws holistically, we'll see that equality, you know, as a principle is not the, is not the, is not our foundation. And straight away, you may be thinking, no, but there are ayah of Quran that talk about equality, and I will address them. But I just wanted to lay this foundation that nowadays, and in particular, you know, if we're looking at the context of feminism, equality is the, it's like, it is the foundation, it's the cornerstone, and that's what um, feminists are calling for, that they, only once you achieve equality with men, and in particular now, it's what modern men have, you know, in season, sorry, not season, in episode one, I've gone through the history of the three 
actually no, that's four now, the four waves of feminism that have taken um, place over time. And you'll see that each one wanted to achieve equality at the, with men, the, the whites that the men had at that time. But um, if we just um, think about, you know, in, in America, in Europe, the social views and values, for better or worse, are always in rapid evolution. We can see that just looking at the history of the different waves of feminism, it's evolved. What it means to have equality with a man has evolved, has it not? Um, you know, the first phrase, fem feminists, they wanted the vote. They weren't interested in abortion um, rights. You know, well, in, in a, if we say actually reproductive rights would be a better way to put that, that, you know, so control over your body, whether you have a baby, whether you don't, whether you choose to, you know, have a, be in a relationship where you don't have to get married or you do. That's not what they were asking for, but that is what came what later, you know, um, feminists wanted. So that's what I mean by rapid evolution. Now, often this leads to previously unanticipated political changes in society. And that poses a unique problem for Muslims because we subscribe to timeless principles. And quite frankly, it's unfair to ask Muslims to bend their, you know, what they want uh, without you know, that because that's what's being asked of us, that equality has become the rallying point. It's become a, it's like a, you know, um, unquestionable value or principle in today's society. And that's what I mean when we say, when we're accused of, if we don't want equality, then that means we want inequality, and in particular, inequality for women. So then what we feel like straight away is that we then feel we have to say, no, no, I do. I do want equality. And then therefore I'll agree with feminism and I'll agree. And therefore I'll take wholesale. I have to agree with everything. That That's the core. That's the corner that I felt I have was pushed into. And um, what I'm saying here is that that's not correct. Why should me or you feel that just because that's become the cause now and that's become politically correct that it doesn't mean we have to jump on the bandwagon. You, we have to have a confidence to say, no, we will authentically, honestly and authentically look at, you know, the boundaries of our religious texts in light of these developing, you know, ideas. And we'll then judge those ideas with the yardstick of Quran and Sunnah. That, that's what we're going to do, because, as I said previously, our, you know, our starting point is submission to Allah. So that's what, um, so let's have a look now. Um, the foundation upon which the Islamic system of law is built is the concept of justice. And I would really recommend that you do your own reading and research. Don't, please just, don't just take my word for it. But this is something I kept hearing that justice in Islam, you know, adalat, the idea of, uh, you know, everyone should be treated justly, not equally. I'm going to say that again. It's not equal treatment just you know so whether you're a man a woman a child a non-muslim or you know citizen of an islamic you know government you will be treated justly according to the laws that Allah has given so you know um so in surah 57 ayah 25 Allah says in the quran we have already sent our messengers 
with clear evidence and sent down with them the scripture and the balance that the people may maintain their affairs in justice. Equality is used in the Quran not as a starting point for law or an organizing principle, but in terms of accountability. In Surah Surah 49, Ayah 13, Allah says, We created you for male and female and made you into communities and tribes so that you may know one another. Verily, the most noble amongst you in the sight of Allah is the most pious. In another ayah, in Surah 3, Ayah 195, Allah says, I will not lose sight of any who labours in my way, whether male or female, you are of one another. So just these two ayahs, and there are many others, for example, um, in Surah 18, Ayah 49, Allah says, your Lord does injustice to no one. So as men and women, we will be accountable as far as our actions Allah will judge us equally on the Day of Judgment based on our deeds. So that's where we are equal. However, when we look at, um, there there are different rules applied to men and women and different roles as well. And I think many of us know this, but I, I have really benefited from looking back at you know, what's my responsibility and role? How should I view this? Because having been raised in the UK for, you know, I went through the education system, you know, having absorbed the media and movies and books and TV, it's inevitable that we will all absorb some ideas. If this is what is, if you know, the principle that no, actually men and women should always be equal. If that is being given to us, um, it's natural that we're going to absorb that. So let's just have a look at how do we view rights in Islam. So as I've said previously, feminism tries to achieve two goals, to expand the rights of women, that's one, and to achieve equality with men in most, if not all, matters. This quest for equality has not created justice in liberal societies. And I'll, and I'll explain what I mean. So, if Islam does not accept equality as the starting point, it also does not condemn those who seek to achieve rights for women, as some of the rights may also be Islamic rights. So, what can happen sometimes is that nowadays, ultra-conservative Muslims can condemn feminism without first separating these two aspirations of rights and equality. So let me, so I'm just going to explain that again. So there's the idea that women should have certain rights. That's true. And as Muslims, we say, yes, that's true. Women should have certain rights. And it will be our creator that defines what rights we should have. You know, what rights we should have, what responsibilities, and even how we should try to obtain those rights. Yeah, so what actions we should take. That's that's what Islam says. Now, in the same way, then you've got feminists who they believe yes, there are certain rights that we should women should have, but they they're deciding that for themselves. As I've seen, it's always been, it's just been the human mind, 
that we're going to decide what they are. And what you see is that um, over time, this is constantly evolving. Their ideology evolves, but our principles and our guidelines are fixed. That that is where the difference comes in. Difference comes in, and what I would say, and I hope that I may—I'll be honest—I might have been guilty of this. That I may have been—I uh, hope, inshallah, I hope I haven't. But like I said, I think I have condemned feminists for um, or been a bit negative or derogatory. I—I I, I, inshallah, I'm going to try my best not to do that. But um, when the rights that they're wanting are what Allah says a woman should have, then. Yes, that's the, then they're correct. I would, you know, I wouldn't disagree with that. But as we can see now, the way that it has evolved, there are many things that are actually really detrimental to family, to children, to society in general. Um, quite promiscuous, um, you know. Quite, um, you know. I think you know what I'm talking about. That they are rights that I would say no, and as Muslim would say no, we don't agree with that because that's not what Allah has said. So when Islam came, women, as you know, women had very few rights in pre-Islamic Arabia. The Quran came to deal with these injustices. For example, the poorer tribes of the Arabs in Mecca and Medina used to bury their daughters alive. Allah condemned the practice saying, in Surah Taqweer, Ayah 8-9, and when the girl was buried alive, is asked, for what sin she was killed. And in Surah Nahal Ayah 58, and when one of them is given the good news of the birth of a female, his face becomes dark and he suppresses grief. Meaning that before even burying her, you've already buried her value. That is what allows you as a society to be okay with burying your daughters alive. So infanticide did happen prior to Islam. Now, there were also some um, really awful marital schemes of Jahaliyyah. Imam Tarabari narrates, Ibn Abbas said that when a man's father would die, he would be most entitled to his wife. So the son would be entitled to the father's wife. If he wished he could keep her for himself or hold he until she is ransomed with a bridal dowry or she dies and he takes her wealth so he could hold as in hold her as in keep her uh, men would another example men would send their wives to be intimate with other men to have children from a more noble tribe they would enact contracts around that so Again, it's, the thought of this is, is quite disgusting. Um, the waiting period for a widow. Before Islam, Zainab, may Allah be pleased with her, said that when a woman's husband died, she would be confined to a small room. She would wear her worst clothes, not touch perfume or anything similar until an entire year passed. To decide if... The situation of women changed. We need to listen to narrations from women of that time and for men of that time. So if we look at, there's a very famous narration by Aisha. She said that the messenger, peace be upon him, said, 
Yes, women are the twin halves of men. There's also a, um, a saying from Umar. He said, in the days of ignorance, Jahaliya, we used to have no regard for women whatsoever until Allah revealed about them what he revealed and allotted for them what he allotted. So he gave them certain rights and he gave them responsibilities. Umar first mentions the view of the intrinsic value of women. Then he mentions the legal aspects of their rights. We also have a narration from a Sahabiyat who said, Allah and his messenger are more merciful to us than ourselves. Let's look at Surah Azab, Ayah 35, where Allah says, Indeed, the men, Muslim men and Muslim women, the believing men and believing women, the obedient men and obedient women, the truthful men and truthful women, the patient men and patient women, the humble men and humble women, the charitable men and charitable women, the fasting men and fasting women, the men who guard their private parts and the women who do so, and the men who remember Allah often and the women who do so. For them, Allah has prepared forgiveness and a great reward. So now what we can see is when we look at the Islamic rules holistically, the default is that men and women have the same rights and responsibilities in the law. Then some differences are specified for men and for women. So for example, a man is given the responsibility of taking care of his wife and his children, his family. That is his, Allah has given him that responsibility. He needs to go out to work, earn money and provide. He's the head of the household. That's here for him. Whereas for women, we are given the role of the homemakers. We take care of, we're like them, we manage the home, we manage the children, we take care of that aspect you know, there's also the specification of regarding dress code. It's different for men and women in public. So women, we have to wear the khimar, which covers our hair, our neck, and um, a, a outer garment, a jilbab. So, and there you, we can see there are differences. So when Muslims, some Muslims look at that ayah in Surah Azab that I mentioned, and then from that they say that Islam treats men and women equally. Therefore, Islam believes in equality, i.e. the principle. Now that is that ex extrapolation is incorrect because I'll just give you a few examples. I think I've mentioned them previously. That if Islam believed in absolute equality, then why are men men are the imams in the prayer in, in the masjids? Women pray behind men when we do pray in the masjid. Um, you know, the, um, women are given three times, mothers are given three times more respect as mothers compared to men. You know, a man has to give a woman a meher, a, a marriage gift. A woman doesn't have to give a man that, you know, uh, I'll give an example of clothing, the difference of responsibilities of a husband and wife. So let's be clear. Let's not as like, you know, if you go on YouTube, you will find videos by Muslim women who will say Islam believes, Islam is a feminist religion, Islam believes in equality. That's taking a very um, simple um, view. It's not having, you, they haven't, I'll be honest, haven't studied Islam um, 
in this aspect of it enough. And it really, and I do know why that happens. It's like a knee jerk reaction to when we are accused of being um, um, working for inequality and not striving for equality. That's when we react and say, no, 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 we are feminist. We do believe in equality. And we try to do like mental gymnastics and twist and turn Islam to fit into a modern idea that's being propagated. And we shouldn't do that. It does not, it's not being genuine to our Islamic texts. I'd like to go through a few of the rights that Allah has given women. In particular, these are rights I'm going to look at are the ones that the first wave of feminists, what they were calling for. So historically, as I mentioned, uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia and interestingly in Victorian Britain, where um, you know feminism really kicked off, um, unjust lawmakers denied women certain rights. Now, in contrast, Allah gave women rights and responsibilities that created balance in society. So, for example, in the field of education, Islam encourages women to gain knowledge in all beneficial matters in which they are capable. This knowledge is Islamic and general knowledge. In Surah 20, Ayah 114, Allah says, Say, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. We, we all know this, the while we teach it to our children, Rabbi Zidni Ilma. Um, in a hadith, uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Seeking knowledge is an obligation upon every Muslim, men and women. Abu Musa reported, We never had a problem occur to us as the companions of the Messenger, except that we would ask Aisha and find with her some knowledge concerning it. It is often claimed that if this is the case, where are the female Muslim scholars of history? So Aisha was the female companion. She narrated hundreds of hadith. So that was, we can see in the past, yes, that was there. So now it's interesting that Dr. Akram Nadwi, who's part of the Salam Institute in London, was he compiled the biographies of 8,000 women scholars in 40 volumes and when he was compiling this, these biographies he said he only stopped at 8,000 because he there had to be an end point he could have compiled more than 8,000 so this compilation and the narrations by Aisha they both both of these facts actually debunk the myth that somehow our Islamic texts have a male slant to them. Many of us have, have bought into this, this myth that somehow it's men that are interpreting the Quran and Hadith, and so therefore they have a bias. And what is then given as a solution to that is that we need women to interpret Hadith and Ayah and give a pro-women, you know, be a more positive um interpretation for women. Now, what I would say is, are we saying that all the Muslim scholars of Islam have been biased against women? Now, if they were, then we would see that there would be injustices in the Islamic laws. And and when the fact that there are times when women are 
you could say given better treatment than men, you know, so the example of the women, the meher, you know, women getting alimony, women being given three times more respect as mothers, and, and there are many more. Then why is it that it's, again, it was men who did they that collected the hadith that did, um, you know, came up with rulings. You know, if we think of the four imams of the madhabs, you know, we have to think, are we saying that every single one of them was biased? Now that doesn't, that doesn't hold factually, it's not correct. And then the idea, so if, are we then going to say that women, if they interpreted the Quran and Hadith, they would not be biased? Is that what we're saying? Are we saying women are perfect? Um, because right, let's say there could be some bias in men, but I don't think that could just, you know, so again, men are not perfect and women not perfect. A scholar, a mujtahid, they try their best, you know, they based on the knowledge they have. And then what you have is other scholars would account them. And then as we, as Muslims, if we under your average Muslim, let's say, we need to gain out, gain knowledge. So again, if we see that there's an interpretation that actually contradicts Islam, we can then say something. And uh, there's the very famous example of that exact thing happening where at one point when Umar was Khalif, he wanted to put set a limit on the meher. And then a woman, um, she then said to Umar that she stood up and she said that, no, you, you're... Um, he said it was too excessive, you know, and then the woman said, it is not so, O Umar, for Allah said, and then she quoted an ayah of Quran, that's a surah 4, ayah 20, and you gave one of them a great amount. So she said to him, no, you're not allowed to set a limit on the meher because Allah hasn't put a set a limit. And then Umar said, indeed, a woman has challenged Umar and she has defeated him. Now that's an example of a woman, um, Muslim women using their political rights there and using their voice. So, so I just really just want to address the idea that somehow Islam, the interpretation of Islam has, is patriarchal and has a male bias. Th that is not true because then, uh, just another example, then why men could have removed the hadith narrated by women. Yeah, they, they, they could have done that, but why is it that they still exist in, in all the books of hadith? So... Let's move on to the rules of inheritance. So again, um, first wave feminists, they were not given, they wanted the right to inherit. They weren't given this right. Now, I'd just like to narrate in Surah 4, Ayah 7, Allah says, men shall have a share of what their parents and closest relatives leave, and women shall have a share of what their parents and closest relatives leaves leave whether the legacy be small or large this is ordained by Allah prior to Islam they weren't allowed this now um it is notable that Islam's declaration of inheritance for women preceded the western world by a millennium where until the end of the 16th century women were basically denied the right to inherit property and this was only the starting point so while women inherit less than men in four situations, they inherit more than men in 16 situations and equal to men in 10 situations. Now, there's a very good article on Yakin, it's Yakin Institute, um, which goes through the details of, um, you know, the different ways in which women 
um, sometimes depending on the circumstances because uh, they are given more and sometimes they're given less. Now, again, this is an accusation thrown on Islam that women are always given less. But again, they're looking at one situation. Now, the beauty of Islam is that the rules um, are there, that they solve different situations. So depending on whether the woman is married, not married, whether she has children, whether she has um, her parents are still alive, her siblings, because as we know, families are complicated. Um, and um, so the laws of inheritance are deal with those, you know, different dilemmas. And it's interesting, the, um, you know, the whole development of algebra, which the Muslims developed, was the reason why, one reason why it was developed was to solve the issues relating to percentages linked to algebra, which I was, I've, I've found that really fascinating. Let's take a look at the rules regarding consent in marriage. Aisha reported, I said, O Messenger of Allah, should women be asked for their consent before marriage? The Prophet, peace be upon him, said yes. And the Prophet was ready, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was ready to annul a marriage when he heard the woman had not consented. So the idea of Islam permitting forced marriages or telling a woman to, we'll also look at divorce in a minute, about whether a woman has to stay in a abusive marriage. So Muslim women have the right to divorce their husbands if the marriage has proven incompatible or the husband is guilty of serious misconduct. Islam provides women with this legal recourse to end a broken marriage or to escape an abusive partner. There were two avenues for a Muslim woman to divorce her husband. Number one, mutual agreement upon her request, which is called al-khula. And number two, divorce imposed by a judge, talaq al-qadi. So the I, I just want to, um, as I was um, preparing this podcast today, in the news it was, um, there was the, uh, the headline, billionaire Dubai, rule, uh, billionaire ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who's 70, ordered the kidnap of his two daughters, one of them on the streets of Britain, before locking them up and torturing them behind his palace walls. And it also talks about how Princess Haya, 40, who's 45, fled to London from Dubai last year, fearing for her life. Now, here's the dilemma we face that as I am relating to you, the factual rules of Islam regarding the rights of wives, daughters, women, you then have examples like this happening and they get a lot of media attention, as we know. And it's, you know, they're just so obviously Muslim. He has a beard. He's, you know, his name is, um, what's his name? Sheikh Muhammad. So this is a problem that exists. And what we need to realize is that these are in one, it's individual Muslims choosing to disobey Allah. It's very clear you're not allowed to do these things. It's haram, but men are doing it, yeah? So that's that's one issue that we face. Now, the as far as uh, then what um, recourse does a woman today have to then, you know, that, well, here are my rights, but how am I going to get them? So this is, you know, um, without... Islam isn't just a set of um, individual rules to be applied, you know, whether a person chooses them or not. 
what you had the time of the Prophet and the and the caliphs afterwards was you had the individual laws and you then had the um, systems in place to make sure the people adhered to those rules. So because people are not angels, you know, we are not perfect. You know, if there's no education system here to educate us, to raise us on with this knowledge, um, and then a, a punishment system there to pit for people who choose to be unjust, whether it's to the to the women folk or to the men or to children, there's, you know, it has the two have to go hand in hand. There's a very famous saying by Uthman that he said, the Sultan, which here meant the Islamic law and the government, is there to, I'm paraphrasing, it will, is there to change what the Quran cannot change. You know, so some people will be just and obey Allah just by based on reading the Quran and Sunnah. But some people, they need the law of the land to make them realize, I cannot, it'll keep them on the straight and narrow. And that's what we we don't have. And in no way am I, you know, um, romanticizing our past. I really am just factually relaying what we did have. And, uh, you know, Islamic history and the current state of the Ummah, you know, is, um, we have to study why we're in this situation, you know, and um, there are legitimate grievances, but um, what we find is that they're usually followed by illegitimate agendas that exploit these legitimate grievances. And so what you will have is, um, like in, in the West in particular, certain individual Muslim women who have had been treated unjustly they are then given a lot of limelight and no one's um, reducing what they've gone through. No one's belittling that, but they're given um, an an amazing amount of attention, you know, to write books and their stories are turned into movies and they're on talk shows. You know, we all know, you just, you you know who I'm speaking about. They'll, uh, some, some will be ex, uh, ex Muslims. And, um, and the main, what you'll always find is that Islam is blamed no one will give Islam the benefit of the doubt. It's not put in context of the country, is it, it's a post-colonial construct, that country, whether it's Afghanistan or Pakistan or, you know, or Egypt um, or Somalia, you know. They won't mention that, but they will make it very clear, make a connection, ah, Islam is the problem here. And then what that does to Muslims here, for us, is that we start to we apologize and we think, oh no, Islam is backward and it is, because look at what it did to these poor women. And um, we have to be more intelligent when we look at these stories. Something that women are always asking for is that their voice to be heard. So is our voice given any value in Islam, in particular when it comes to a political voice? So Islam gave women the right to vote. um, And in Britain, this right was given to women in 1918. And in Switzerland, they only got it in the 1960s. So if we look at the case of Medina, Umm Atiyah said, we gave our bayah, our pledge of allegiance to the messenger of Allah, so he recited to us, they should associate none with Allah, and he forbade us from wailing for the dead. A woman among us withdrew her hand. That's in Bukhari. So what this, this was the um, second pledge of Aqaba. So when the Prophet, peace be upon him, he 
wanted to so he was he wanted the pledge of allegiance from the you know a group of people the ansar of medina and so and then he would then come to then be the ruler be the leader of the you know newly established islamic government in medina so a group of um and people from Medina came to give them, give the Prophet peace upon him his pledge. So that is a, that is what I mean by the vote. That yes, we want you to be our leader, and we will obey you. And so Um Atiyah was one of those women. And as the fact that one of the women withdrew her hand means that she didn't agree to what the ple- she was pledging to, but she had come. So that shows there were women there. And after the conquest of Makkah in seven AH. The Quran, in the Quran, it mentions this event. Oh, you prophet, when female believers came to you swearing allegiance to you, that's Surah 60, Ayah 12. Now, so again, that's what I mean by we, they were involved in politics. Now, Islam gave women, to, uh, gave women the opportunity to be active participants in matters of political consultation, shura. Abdul Rahman As-Salami reported Umar bin al-Khattab said, and now this was the narration of the um, incident of the woman um, um, accounting Umar for being putting a limit on the dowry. So that's another example. So um, again, there's a way, there's a method um, for us to conduct ourselves in politics. You know, the there's been women's marches that have become popular around the world. And so, and you'll see Muslim women attending these marches. Now, what I would advise if you're thinking of attending a women's march, you need to be very clear what exactly are you marching for? What are the, what are the people going to be calling for? Are, if they're calling for anything that um, contradicts Islam, we can't be part of that march, you know, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's um, issues relating to, um, you know, gender identity. You know, in, in Islam, gender is linked to biology. There's male and there's female. You know, that's it's very clear. So we have to, you know, there is this idea of the social justice. Um, as, as I said at the beginning, of uh, that Islam believes in justice, but justice is defined by Allah you know, not by the mind. And so what we have now is that social justice movements are a catch-all for many different movements, some that do contradict Islam. And what we're being told is that, um, okay, um, women's organizations um, and, you know, whether it's socialist movements as well, or civil rights movements, they have now adopted our causes. They're saying to Muslim women that we will fight for your rights. You know, so whether it's a congresswoman or or man, and um, they're saying to us, or even just uh, you know campaigners, they're saying that if you march with us, if you work with us, we will also work for your rights and help improve your situation. And then. As a Muslim, we're looking at this and thinking, well, what we have is we've got the conservative right. They're attacking us and they're criticised. They're quite openly Islamophobic. Whereas what you have is the left. Um, they are they are supporting us. But both of them, the conservatives and the, the left, 
Both of them are liberal. Both of them as their roots, both come from, you know, it's the mind, it's people deciding. So at the moment, the left, the liberal left, they own, they want us to get involved with them because they want us to either vote for them or campaign with them. They see that there's a benefit in including us in their um you know, in in their um, social justice movements, you know, okay, and no one's um, saying that they're not genuine. There may there are many genuine people who do care about our the fact that we um, the Islamophobia, the prejudice that we face, the racism, the sexism, you know. But we again, I think it goes back to studying what exactly if we are going to ally with them, if we are going to collaborate with them are we compromising our Islam or are we sticking to our principles? And um, we don't just go to different organizations for our benefit, that short-term benefit. They're coming to us for their benefit. So if they feel that if the Muslims can be mobilized for their movement, it gives them more, you know, um, a louder voice. It looks like they have people with them. And then, and most of the time you'll see it's about getting votes as well. They, they want something from us, but in them wanting something from us, are we giving up our Islam to, for, for them to, to work, you know, to, to get again, some immediate benefit. And, um, that's not right. You know, the pro- did the Prophet Sallallahu we have to go back to the Sunnah, did he align himself with non-Muslim causes that contradicted Islam? That, that's the really important part here. Now, if we look at um, in our history, we Islam permitted women to become judges. Famously, Umar made the Qadi Hizba, the judge of the marketplace, a woman. Islam permitted all you know uh, us to um, women to take part with it as judges, scholars. You know, we we were given this right to do this, um, but these jobs cannot be at the expense of creating and taking care of our family life and nurturing because that is our primary role as mothers you know so that's what we need to make sure we um we're not compromising one uh, to achieve something else inshallah my aim in this podcast was to show that number one justice is what muslims strive for and that's what we should strive for, justice based on Islam, Quran and Sunnah and the Quranic rights that Allah has given women and men. And that equality, we don't need to strive for equality because as I outlined in the rights that Allah has given us, you know, Islam entered into the uh, the pre-Islamic society of Arabia where women were buried physically and seen as a curse and a burden but then in the same generation, Islam produced female scholars that could speak with authority to the entire generation of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Aisha. So if we see that how it just turned 180 degrees, everything flipped once Islam came to that site and it altered the way men thought about women, it altered the way women were treated, it gave women, um, you know, rights you know i'm not going to even call them human rights because again that word has been co-opted by and means certain things i'm not going to use the word empowerment because that has certain connotations in you know the liberal paradigm now the liberal worldview basically allah created us 
and Ella knew exactly what we needed and what responsibilities we could handle, what roles we could do well that suited the way he had created us. Now, um, what I'll be doing, I'm going to do a second part to this because I haven't been able to, I want to also speak about family life and how, you know, because that is something that that equality is thrust into that argument that somehow the relationships and the roles should be equal and that will create, um, um, you know, balance in society. But so inshallah, in the next podcast, that's what I'll be discussing, the issues relating to husband and wives and the very clear um, view that Allah has given to us about um, how we should view that. So inshallah, if you have any questions, please um, email me at, um, I've actually changed my email address because the other email address, it's, I'll just share this with you that I um, I used to do it with GoDaddy. And if you're thinking of using GoDaddy, don't use it because they've suddenly in, added so many charges to using an email address, using, it, it's actually really quite um I think it's extortionate what they're doing. So that was um, my new email address is UK at gmail.com. That's how you can get in touch with me. If you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, they are on my website, Um Also, um, the book club, the Thinking Muslim Book Club. Mashallah, we've got nearly 40 members that have joined. You can join that on goodreads.com. Just become a member of Goodreads and then um, search for the Thinking Muslim Book Club. All the books that I'm using um, to in the research I do for the podcast, I will be putting them up there. Inshallah, let's end with dua. Subhanaka Allahumma wa bihamdika ashhadu alla ilaha anta astaghfiruka wa atubu alayk wal asr innal insana la fi khusr illa alladhina amanu wa amilus salihati wa tawassaw bil haqq wa tawassaw bis sabr